We are about one thing here at first, and that's helping each other follow Jesus. And I think sometimes, though, when it gets into this idea of becoming a Christian or following Jesus, being a disciple, there's this, this misnomer that, well, okay, I gave my life to Christ, therefore it becomes God's job or responsibility to keep my life comfortable or to get all the hard things out of my life. And if for some reason hardships come my way as a follower of Jesus, then it must mean he's mad at me. Or I've done something wrong, or I haven't tithed enough, or whatever that may be. And if someone's ever given you that impression, that's completely false. But there is a greater promise that God gives to us, which is when the storms of life come, when the mountains of adversity come our way, he is there with us to stand firm as our rock and our foundation. And so as we talk about today in Acts chapter 23, how do we continue to face adversity with confidence as people of faith? Now, have you ever had an unfortunate, though, uh, slip with the tongue? Have you ever had one of those moments, perhaps uh, in a conversation with somebody where something happened and said that you you didn't really mean to? Uh, I've been known to do this a few times from stage. In fact, early on in planting Urbana, there was a time when, let's just say, a a unintentional four-letter word slipped out. And uh, thankfully, I still have my job today, but it's one of those things that unfortunate uh, things happen. And so this week, as I was preparing, I found a couple that online that I found were funny that you might be able to maybe resonate with some of these. So here's a couple of unfortunate unfortunate uh, events that have happened to people. Here's the first one. This person says, well, after flunking a job interview, I got up, shook everyone's hand, and then I walked into the coat closet. Like, could you imagine, like, you bomb the interview, and then just to make it worse, you don't even remember which is the right door to go out of? Here's the second one. This one was pretty funny. They said, I once tried on a coat in TJ Maxx. Come to find out it was the coat of a customer trying on another coat. So, man, this is a nice coat. Where did you find this? That's my coat. Like, was this in the dressing room or was this in the aisle? I have a lot of questions. This next one is cringeworthy, but it's too funny. So I once walked up to a baby-holding stranger thinking it was my sister at my daughter's soccer game and demanded, give me the baby. Like, you're, you're, you're there saying this stranger just comes up to, let me hold the baby. And you're like, uh, get away from me. I'm about to call the cops. This last one hasn't happened to me, but I probably will at some point, and it says this. Said, I once bumped into a mannequin and said, sorry. And then I said, oh, sorry, I thought you were a person, only to realize I was still talking to a mannequin. You know, there's just certain things that happen in life that are unfortunate. And sometimes there's unfortunate things that we can ride off, but there are other things that stick with us a little bit longer. And this is not a, a spoiler alert about news of life, but it's unfortunate events and uncertainties are both certainties of life. You don't have to live very long to begin to figure this out. And there's some harder unfortunate certainties or uncircumstances that come our way. Things like broken promises, foiled plans, or unforeseen pain. And yet it's interesting because as I have grown and matured throughout my life, and perhaps you can resonate with this, is the true make of a person is not who they are and what they do when times are good. It's oftentimes how do they handle adversity. That's why we have that statement. When the going gets tough, the tough what? Get going. 
And so it's very true of our life and certainly true of our faith. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 23 this morning. Acts chapter 23. If you have your study guide, uh, your study journal, go ahead, get that out. You can take notes and actually flip with me to the front cover uh, to that map because we're going to kind of real quickly trace back where we've been every single week. We preach out of the Bible every single week. We give you notes. You can find them on the app. You can find them as you come in and get communion. Uh, Uh, And so if you're wondering, how do I go deeper in my walk? What are practical things? Those notes also have homework, not just for you as an individual, but if you're in a group, oftentimes your groups go and talk about those as well too. But here's where we've been so far. 23 chapters in the book of Acts. It's been a while since I've drawn, so I just wanted to draw this morning. Um, And and so it all started down here, and this is the city of Jerusalem here. All right, so it starts the city of Jerusalem. Remember, the book of Acts picks up shortly after the death, resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' disciples, they're hanging out in Jerusalem. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God, the day of Pentecost, comes upon them. And for a handful of chapters, they, they, they minister, they witness, they evangelize in Jerusalem. And then persecution begins to come their way. Because these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, these zealots did not want this thing called the way to keep going. And so they began to kind of scatter in various directions, but a lot of them head north to this place called Antioch. In Antioch, they're first called Christians, and from there, we eventually meet this man by the name of Paul. And he's been kind of the main character in the book of Acts the last, I don't know, 14, 15 chapters or so. And God goes to Paul and says, Paul, you were a Pharisee, you were a zealot trying to tear me down. Now, you are going to be my number one worker. And so Paul then begins to take the gospel of Jesus all throughout the region of the ancient Middle East. And he'll go to the region of Galatia, and he kind of loops around. He goes, hangs out at the beach because when you don't know where to go, you go to the beach type of situation, right? And they eventually visit all of these big cities that become other parts of the New Testament. They plant churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Ephesus, and they kind of do this loop and then they make their way back. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, they're trying to figure out Jews, Gentiles, who gets to belong? And then Paul goes on another journey. He heads back up and he kind of does the whole thing again. And where we pick up today is this same man is continuing in this journey, in this thing. But he's not going to go a whole lot more. In 23 chapters, they've covered some almost 10,000 miles. But for the final kind of couple, handful of chapters, we're down here in Jerusalem. He's going to get sent to this place called Caesarea. And then from Caesarea, he's going to be taken to Rome, and he's going to get shipwrecked in this place called Malta before he eventually finishes his journey. And that's it. We're not, there's not a whole lot of travel left, but there's still a lot of work that God wants to do through Paul. So this is where we're headed. We're picking up in Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 1 this morning. You can follow along with me. It says this, so Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin were these religious Jewish leaders, Sadducees, Pharisees. They were kind of like the high court of the time. And he said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And you sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? 
And so Paul replied, there's a little bit of walking back this moment. He says, brothers, I did not realize that it was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Not gonna lie. I can kind of relate to Paul here in this situation. You ever had a moment where your anger, your frustration just kind of comes out, gets the best of you? And so Paul's defending himself. Remember, he's on trial for something he did not do. And they're trying to kill the guy. And Paul just says, hey, I've just been obedient to God. And they said, let's slap this man. He's, he, just, he can't be spread. And then he kind of replies like, well, if you slap me, I'm going to slap you back. How do you like that? And then he kind of realizes, oh, I'm talking to the high priest. I'm talking to the big gun. In some ways, he's saying, I'm talking to the guy that God, in some form or fashion, has still appointed, even though he's not honoring this job well. Now, the irony of this is Ananias, the great high priest, was known, he was popular, he was powerful, yet nine years after this moment, some assassins are going to take him out because of his choices. But he throws this insult out. He calls Ananias, the high priest, as well as presumably the whole Sanhedrin, a whitewashed wall. Isn't this such a good comeback? Right? You're dumb. You're stupid. Oh, yeah, you're beige stucco. <laughs> How do you like me now? It's like, wait, 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 this is not like, you know, like a way that you come at somebody when you're angry with them. What kind of insult is that? Now, actually, history tells us that that phrase, whitewashed wall, sounds very familiar to how Jesus referred to some of the Pharisees when he called them whitewashed tombs. If you were to go to the ancient Middle East uh, back then, and even in, in regions of Greece today, you'll notice there are either homes or sides of, of terrain painted white. And what they would do is they would paint it white as a symbol to say the foundation is not good. This thing is not going to last. This building is not going to stand forever. And so Paul in some way is looking at these Jewish leaders and he's saying, your foundation is weak. Your foundation for life is crumbling. You look great on the outside, but we both know the truth of what you are standing on. It was ironic because Ananias was popular. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He was hyper-religious. Yet there was a foundational weakness to his life, meaning that it was not built on the truths that he proclaimed. You see, anything other than the truth of Jesus crumbles away. Anything your life is built upon, anything you believe in, anything you value other than the truth and the person of Jesus will at some point crumble away. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. You will bow before God before you step into eternity. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You can't take that money with you. It doesn't matter how prideful you are or how right you think you are because you will be humbled. It doesn't matter how popular you are or how influential you are because everybody will move on and not think something twice about you when you are gone. The only thing that lasts in this life the only foundation that takes from this life into eternity is the truth and the investments into our faith and into the kingdom of God. So in an offset matter, even though Paul is addressing the Sanhedrin, we can all begin to ask ourselves that same question. What is the foundation of my life? Is it things of God or is it perhaps a whitewashed wall of sorts? Book of Acts continues, picking up in verse 6. It says, then Paul, seeing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about how Jesus lived, died on the cross, went to the grave, rose three days later. 
When he said this, a a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there was no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all these things. So here is Paul. Paul says, I am a Pharisee. I am the son of a Pharisee. I find it very interesting because Paul doesn't say, I used to be a Pharisee. He doesn't say, well, you know, my old way of life before I repented came to Jesus. Well, you know, I was a Pharisee, but I've re, re, kind of rerouted. No, he says, I still am a Pharisee. And Jesus and the Pharisees butted heads a lot. They were probably one of his biggest enemies. So what's Paul getting at? Why is he in some way still referring to his old life? See, because there are things about the Pharisees that Paul is saying, I agree with you. You believe in strong doctrine. I'm with you there. Except that one doctrine that Jesus actually was the Messiah, lived, died, rose again, that's kind of the most important one. You, you have a zeal for scripture. You want people to know God in the same manner. He said, those are all good things. So in a similar manner, I can relate with you in that, but we just disagree over the source of your faith. You see, what I believe that most Pharisees misunderstood was this, is that the source of the law is more important than the religion of the law. Sometimes we think that the Pharisees only cared about the law itself. They just did all these works, they were hyper-religious, thought they could earn God's way. But in actuality, what it is, is they, 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 they missed the source of the law. And this is important. There's a, there's a reason that there's a greater sign here, not like an equal sign with a line. So it's, it's not an either-or situation. Because in this life, we are called to know the source of God's truth, and that is God himself, the source of his law, which is his spirit for us. But that law also calls us to live accordingly. But it's not a posture of earning, it's a posture of presence. It's not pick one or the other. It's not, do you want to have the source or do you want to do the things? It's a know the source that leads you to live out this life. Because here's the thing is you can have religion. And when I say religion, what I mean is like, uh, like, like, like church actions. You can go to church, you can read your Bible. You can have as much religion as you want and still face eternal death. Just because you were sitting in this room this morning or watching us online does not mean that you will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. Just because you do a few religious acts, it doesn't mean faith is yours. Now, you can receive Jesus and not have a whole lot of religion attached to it and eternal life still be a gift for you because it's based by grace through faith. However, the key component is a combination of the two, that we have been given this new life through the source of Jesus that then now lives itself out accordingly. Now, here's the thing. I get the staleness of religion. I get that some people are like, man, I just don't want to do the whole traditional staleness of religion. Other people are on the opposite side. They mean, I kind of love that stuff. It's how I grew up. It's what I'm used to. And sometimes when we say, I don't like the staleness, we, we, we swing the pendulum to this other side, though. That's just as dangerous. The other side says things like, well, I just want my faith to be genuine. I just want it to be pure. I just want to feel it. So, you know, like, Eric, if I uh, don't feel like going to church, well, I don't want to force, force it, you know? And I don't feel like really giving right now, so I'm just not going to, I don't really feel like I'm in the mood to pray or study my Bible. So, you know, Eric, I'm just going to, you know, I don't want it to be fake. I want it to be true, and I want it to be genuine. And then I think to myself, or if I'm having a conversation with somebody, I respond. 
What if I took that in response to my wife? I don't really feel like I love you today, so I'm not going to tell you. Should I try it? No? Okay, yeah. That's probably not, right? What if you took that in your approach to your job? Yo, boss, it's been a long weekend. Got got some news for you. Yeah, what's up? He goes, oh, yeah, so I just want you to know that I've been thinking, I like this job when I like it. Just so you know, I'm going to show up when I'm just like in the mood to work. And I'm going to get my projects done when I'm kind of just like really feeling like passionate about them. And so just letting you know, like I'm just, as soon as I just feel it, because you know, I don't want to fake anything. I don't want to just go through the motions of work. Just so you know, I'll I'll do that when I feel like, is that cool? And he said, cool, I'll clean your desk out for you and send you your stuff later. Yet for some reason, we feel like we can take this approach with God and say, I just want to feel like it. And the problem with that way of thinking is no one is so good so pure or so righteous that you feel like doing what you ought to be doing all the time. You see, part of a genuine faith is actually doing what you don't want to because you know that's what faith would require of you. Part of being a good spouse is doing what you maybe don't feel like doing because that's what love would require of you. Part of being a good parent is bringing the discipline to your child when you don't feel like it because that's what love would require of you. You see, part of having a true, strong, genuine faith is actually to say, I will be disciplined in doing what I know I need to even when I don't feel like it. That's because what discipline is designed to do is to keep us focused on the source. Discipline keeps you focused on the source. Anything in life can become a checklist in which you just go through the motions. Your faith, your family, your job, your health. And if we took that approach, I'm just gonna not do anything until I feel like it. We're gonna waste a lot of time and hours and energy waiting to get into the mood. But when we begin to not feel like it, the key is not to say, well, that doesn't work. See, it's dead. Well, it's not what it wants us. The, The key is to say discipline reminds us that we are focused on the source, not the action itself. So if you ever find yourself saying, Eric, how do I have a a stronger relationship with Jesus? You discipline yourself to be with him. No matter how bad you want to sleep in. No matter how much you don't feel like getting the the family or yourself up out of bed to go to church on a Sunday. No matter how much you want to keep your money for yourself or you don't want to go to group that week because it's just been a long week. You discipline yourself because you know that's what faith requires of you. You want to have a stronger relationship with your spouse. You discipline yourself to be with them, to speak the truth to them gracefully and in love, regardless of how much the anger maybe boils up within you. You want to have a strong relationship with your child. You discipline yourself to turn off the TV or to put down the phone and get on the floor with them because that time is limited. You want to grow in that career. That's great. You need to discipline yourself, though, to be at work. Discipline yourself to maybe develop thick skin. Discipline yourself to learn a new skill each and every day. Hear me when I say this. Is that the greatest version of you is the disciplined you. The greatest version of you is not the go with the flow you. The greatest version of you is not the take every day as it comes you. The greatest version of you is the same greatest version of me is the discipline version. 
Not this emotional epicenter that, that kind of flows because discipline says, I am focused on my prize. I am focused on the goal. And for us as disciples of Jesus, that focus is Jesus. That focus is living out a life of faith, of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. You will never reach a dream. You will never reach an aspiration. There is no growth without discipline and doing what matters most. And as Paul exemplifies here to us, what matters most is filling our lives with the truth of God and of Jesus and nothing else. Story continues in verse nine. Paul goes on, he says, so there was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them. And so he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Real quick, the rest of this chapter gets crazy. These group of people, they get so focused and fixated on taking out Paul that they make a vow. We're not going to eat, sleep, or drink until he's dead. And then Paul's nephew kind of hears of this plan. It's like a movie. And he informs the guards, and the guards are like, is this true? And he's like, yeah, it's true. Like, cool. And like, here's a cookie, and he runs away. And so then they go take Paul. They didn't give him a cookie. I just made that part up. And then they take Paul, and they put him in protective custody, and they get like 300 soldiers to protect him to get all the way to Caesarea. So here's Paul. Think about this. He's being persecuted for rumors that aren't true. He finds himself with some powerful people wanting to take his life. And instead of trying to get out of custody, he wants to proclaim the truth. And so when all hope seemed lost, when he didn't maybe feel like he was getting out this time, there would be no miraculous rescue. I'm never going to make it to Rome like I wanted to. This is what it says in verse 11. It says, then the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Here's the thing. This uncertainty, this adversity in verse 11 couldn't be more vague. God just says, hey, cheer up, bucko. You're going to Rome. And Paul's like, cool, you got a plan? Nope, you're going to Rome. Just know that, you're going to Rome. Yeah, God, I don't know if you've noticed, but kind of what I'm facing here, I've still got some chains. There's like dozens upon dozens of powerful people in this city who want to cut my throat. Jesus, that's a cute plan at all. How are you actually going to get me out of this one, though? Because this mountain of adversity is a little bit bigger than anything else I've faced. Take courage. I'm with you. And Paul's moment of uncertainty, his moment of crisis, his moment of adversity becomes a moment of vision. He's been waiting to go to Rome. The mission is on hold. Nothing positive is going his way. And instead of just throwing God out the window, instead of losing sight on him as the source of his life, God meets him in the uncertainty. It says, the Lord appeared and stood near Paul. The Lord stood near. One of my high school basketball coaches used to say this to our team all the time. He would say, if you want to see the true strength or character of a person, 
Find them in a moment of adversity because then the real them will shine through. There's a man by the name of Rob Kenny. I'm gonna show you a picture of Rob here. Some of you might actually recognize him. He runs the uh, YouTube channel called Dad, How Do I Blink? And it's Dad, How Do I Change My Oil? Dad, How Do I Tie a Tie? Dad, How Do I Make uh, Scrambled Eggs? All that type of just really short, quick, practical videos. Some over 4 million people subscribe to it. He's oftentimes referred to as the internet's dad for how much practical advice he's given people. And a lot of people assume that Rob grew up with a very active and present father and he's just carrying on the tradition. But the truth is the opposite is more of the reality. When Rob was a young boy, his parents got divorced and his mom, instead of sticking around with him, decided to chase after alcohol instead. So he was left with his father who would leave him in the trailer for multiple days on end while he went swinging with some other people. And then when he was a teenager, he vowed to himself, if I ever get the chance, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure people don't feel like I do. So they don't have to grow up like I did. And every Father's Day, Rob receives dozens upon dozens of thank you cards from people all over who have said thank you for being the only father present in my life. How you handle adversity, not prosperity, will say the most about you. This is a tug of war in all of our lives. And one of the things I oftentimes hear is, well, Eric, I have adversity because I don't have enough of this. The reason my life is hard, the reason my life is difficult is because I don't have enough. I don't have more, I don't have more. And so, so the reason I have adversity is because I don't have enough prosperity. But the thing is, is you can't handle your prosperity if you can't stand firm and strong amidst adversity. Let me prove it to you. Did you know that rich people lose friends? Spoiler alert, celebrities get cancer too. Famous athletes who, whose image and their whole life is built upon what they could do on a field crumbles in an instant when that injury comes. Life is a foundation built on a truth or a value. And how you handle adversity is going to reveal in your life what your life is actually built upon. How you handle the certain unfortunate events, dare I call them the certain uncertainties that will come in life, will reveal what is that truth for you. You see, if we read Paul's story, some of us, perhaps we read Paul's story here at this point, and maybe you've been following along with us, you probably maybe at some point say, man, when is Paul going to get a break? When is he going to get off the hook? When's God just going to say, you know what, Paul, you've done enough. You've been obedient to me enough. You've followed me enough. You've sacrificed enough. You know, this time I'm just going to do some magic pixie dust stuff and just get you out of there. I'm going to teleport you to Rome. I'm going to make sure I'm put this force field around you. I'm going to give you a lightsaber. Life's going to be great. We look at Paul's life and say, he must have done something wrong, Right? He must have, you know, not given us the full story to be keep hitting hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. An interesting thing about this story is Paul's response to when, when the people say, we want to take his life. Paul's response is not seen. 
But you know whose response is? God's. The presence of God is clearly seen and stated in verse 11. We're coming for you, Paul. They take him, they put him in the barracks, protect him from harm, and the next thing we see is the presence of God show up literally beside Paul. Because Paul was a man of faith. Faith is when we confidently trust God amidst uncertainty. That when the mountains of adversity come your way, come my way, come our way, we remember God is with us. Jesus even gives this parable in Matthew chapter 7. Build your house on the rock, not on sand, because when the storms come, not if hardship comes your way, not if there might be financial trouble or not, not if that person stays to their promises. He says, when the storms of life come, make sure your house, your life, your faith, your eternity is built on a rock. Not something like sand or a whitewashed wall that will eventually crumble. But the thing is, is, is faith is not us sitting around waiting for God to move. It's us moving closer to him. Especially during the times of uncertainty. That we can accept adversity because the Almighty is at our side. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Go into the world, make disciples, for I am with you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The ability to praise Jesus amidst the pain of life is one of the greatest powers that we have. And do we not see this happen around us? I know a lot of you. Some of you, your story resembles something like this. Well, well I was a career-focused man. Just climbing the corporate ladder, one that four away at 1K to be as big as it can, and then that loved one gets cancer. And you know what doesn't matter so much anymore? That bank account. That vacation-happy family that always had the next vacation had to be bigger and better than the one before, and then someone loses a job. And you realize what's important was not the destination, but the people you spent it with. A lot of people say, hey, what's the most important thing to you in life? God, absolutely, most important thing to me. Cool, show me your daily schedule. Show me your credit card statements. Show me how you schedule your life. And we don't actually turn to God until we actually need something from him. If you're a student in here, you get told this lie, what you can do on a stage, the scores you can produce behind a desk, how you can perform with a ball or on a field, that's who you are. And all it takes is one fumble for you to realize, man, There's a whole lot more to life than that. You see, in adversity, your foundation will be revealed. In 1924, there was a group of English men and women who wanted to be one of the first groups to scale Mount Everest. And so they went through the whole process and they got up the mountain and they stopped at all the base camp and all the acclimation and they got to this point in which they said, okay, Here it goes, we're sending two people up. And these two people never returned, and as far as they know, never reached the summit. They did this twice, and so then they returned back home to London, and they let it sit for just a couple months. And some of the people in the group, they weren't sure. Some of the people are like, how are we ever gonna do this? Other people are asking the question, is it worth it or not? And so they got the team back together because they're supposed to take another trip, and they're kind of having this conversation. Can we actually defeat this mountain or not? 
To which the leader of the group, his name is Sir Edmund Hillary, he gets this big old print out of Mount Everest, puts it behind him, like that's a boss move, like yo, here's the mountain, here's me, let's do this. And he gives this speech though. He says, Everest, we tried to conquer you once, but you overpowered us. We tried a second conquest, but you were too much for us. And here's how he ends it though. But Everest, I will come again and conquer you because as a mountain, you cannot grow. But as a human, I can. That's a man leading a group team saying adversity will never slow us down. It's no coincidence that the Bible is chock full of metaphors describing God as a rock, a mighty fortress, a firm foundation, a refuge for the weak. There is repetition. He is with you. He will be your truth. He will be your foundation. And that's not because he's saying, don't worry, I'm going to shield you from all the pain in your life. And that's not because God steps in and says, hey, just so you know, anything that might give you sorrow, I've made sure it's not going to happen. He doesn't say, I'll be your rock because, you know, I'm God and nothing ever terrible is going to come your way. No, he says, because life happens, because adversity comes our way, because you are, will have and will again face a mountain of adversity. God says, don't worry, you can face it because I am next to you. Because I am by your side. Because my power is greater than anything you will face. My grace is more sufficient than anything you will struggle with. My love for you never leaves and never fails. Jesus said to his disciples, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move. I consider myself a person of faith, and I know a majority of you do too, so let me ask you, have you ever moved a physical mountain? Probably not. And sometimes maybe we give ourselves kind of too much critique and say, maybe it's because I don't have a, enough faith. Or what if it's, though, more about not moving the mountains, but moving us closer to God as we traverse the mountains? What if the ability to have faith is to say, there's a mountain and I'm going to go towards it, knowing that it will not conquer me because God is at my side. Don't focus on the mountain more than the God who loves you more than the God who's called you to a new life. God is bigger than the biggest mountain you will face. He was more present than active than any substance in this life. The love of Jesus is more powerful than any dopamine hit you might chase after. The power of the spirit is more potent than that next upgrade. So let's be the people that build firm foundations of truth, not whitewashed walls that will eventually end as this life does too. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your truth. I pray for everyone here this morning that may your spirit lead them and guide them. If they need an extra sense of your love, may you shower that with them. If there is something they need to hand over to you, to confess to you, may you convict them to do so. If there's someone that they need to apologize to, may you give them that boldness and courage. If there's somebody who's going to be apologized to, may you let them receive that with grace. 
God, may we submit to you anything that we've tried to build this life upon that is not you and your truth, that as the mountains of adversity come towards us, may we boldly walk towards them because you are with us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not distant, but you are a God who is closer than a brother. We worship you and you alone this morning. Amen.